1: show and our latest batch of listener questions on today's show we're contemplating the Leverkusen Invincibles we're assessing Wilford Nancy's job prospects and we're considering the true value of the corner kick my name's Ryan Bailey joining me today your friend of mine Mr. Graham Ruthven hello Graham
2: hello Ryan Bailey how are you have you had any contact from Billy Joe Armstrong yet just reading yet. silence still that's None disappointing yet.
1: So in I saw in London this week as we record Graham he did like a, a secret show with his covers band. I wasn't even invited to that. If I can't even get on the covers oh, band. The how shame. am I gonna get Green Day? Yeah. The shame. I know. Sad. Courtney Love got on stage and I didn't. That's not fair, Graham. Not <laughs> it's fair. It's not, it's not at no. all.
0: For several reasons. Also joining us, Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Ryan. I just can't believe they haven't stumbled upon your barcord prowess. Like, I mean it's just it's there on the internet everywhere for people to see. Mm. You should have been there, and I'm sorry that you weren't.
1: My ability to play five bar chords slightly in time, Joe, should not be underestimated.
0: Well, to be fair, that does qualify you for pop star status. So you are like 95% of the way there. Definitely for a punk band, I'd say. Green
2: Day have made a career out of that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Well, plenty to get into on
1: this episode. Of course, these listener questions we're going to be answering. uh, TotalShockershow.com slash questions if you'd like to contribute, by the way, dear listener. Um, but Graham, we have to get to the main news story as we record today. How many times have you been to the Glasgow Willy Wonka experience?
2: <laughs> as many times as they would let me before they closed it down. I don't know if listeners have seen pictures or videos or coverage, or if even Joe has, has nope. seen pictures or I coverage and uh, videos colors. or coverage of this. Uh, I, I I hadn't didn't visit, I, I wish I had No, it looks like the most Sensational day out, by which yeah. I mean The worst possible day out you could ever imagine
1: Yeah, so to clear this up for the listeners Who don't know um, And Joe, in, in, and Joe and Glasgow had a, a Willy Wonka experience, like very much Not authorised by uh, Rob Dahl, <laughs> not or, not a, or any film production company uh, The most ramshackle thing you've ever seen A very sad looking Oompa Loompa um, <laughs> Just like I think the tickets were like 40-something dollars equivalent. Yeah. Uh, and not, not only did they have to refund, but they felt had to refund people's travel because it was so poor. The, well, the
2: police were called. The it was so bad. Called. People yeah. called the police. Uh, it was basically... I'll try and describe this best I can, in a warehouse with some, like, tarpaulins pinned to the wall with AI images of Willy Wonka. Because they can't use the actual Willy Wonka um, material. And, like, one of the Oompa Loompas frankly looked like she was fronting a meth lab. Um, It was was sensational stuff. I wish it gone.
0: There's a lot of criticism flying towards the Oompa Loompas here. I feel like that's maybe the only part of this that is in keeping with the original either text or movies. Uh, Oompa Loompas are like indentured servants, right? I'm not really expecting them to look happy, and maybe they need income on the side, Graham. I think you're jumping to mm-hmm. conclusions.
1: This is yeah.
2: true. We need to liberate the Oompa Loompas, Joe. Absolutely. This is, hopefully, after that's something
1: yeah Yeah. <laughs> Hugh Grant was very grumpy in that most recent movie, I seem to recall. He wasn't a happy worker as Numper but definitely not. Um the the, <laughs> the newsline here police were called to a venue in Glasgow last weekend after furious families who'd spent hundreds of pounds on Willie's chocolate it's not even called Willie Wonka's chocolate experience, <laughs> Willie's chocolate experience oh, no. complained about the awful event that left children in tears and was abruptly cancelled midway through. Yeah.
2: Oh uh, Willie's chocolate experience. Actually maybe I wouldn't want to experience that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when we do when we do the total soccer show experience in a warehouse in Glasgow one day, we know the bar is low. That's all I'm saying.
2: <laughs> the, the tabloids have had a field day with this. I saw one of them call it Billy Bonkers, <laughs> which was the front page headline. <laughs> wow.
1: Okay. Okay. Wow. okay. So that's what's out there entertainment-wise in uh, Scotland's second city. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for our bonus content. By the way, bonus episodes on there. We're going to be answering a bonus listener question this very day as we record. Uh, We've got video content and access to our Discord where all the cool kids are hanging out. Uh, Joe, what say we get to some listener questions? Should we do that?
0: I say we do it.
1: Let's do it. Richard Rolson has been in touch and says, was it a mistake for Bayern Munich to hire Thomas Tuchel? Would Bayern Munich have been better off with Julian Nagelsmann? I think, Joe, ultimately, the first part of the question is simple. Yes, it was a mistake because it hasn't gone well and he's leaving. The interesting part of the question though is the Nagelsmann part who obviously was coached by Tuchel at Augsburg interestingly Um, sacked while on vacation last March uh, while Bayern were one point behind in the league Tuchel obviously a little bit worse off than that at this point Uh, also Wikipedia tells me Nagelsmann ended his tenure at Bayern with a 71.4% win rate which is quite high so Joe how are we feeling
0: yeah so I'm completely with you on the first part of this question Ryan As far as would was it a mistake for Bayern Munich to hire Thomas Tuchel, it it seems like a pretty clear yes. And not just because Bayern are falling behind in the title race. And at this point, I think all of us would be surprised if Bayern were able to close that gap with Leverkusen, who we'll talk about shortly, and actually get the job done in the Bundesliga this year. Not not just because of that stuff. Bayern Leverkusen are better than we've seen really any Bundesliga title (laughs) challenger be in quite some time. They are the real deal in a way that even Dortmund weren't last year to close out the season but I think that the hiring of Thomas Tuchel is a mistake mostly for the tactical stuff like for the stuff that we've talked about on this show over and over and over again at times it's been far too static it seems like the you know to, to bring Taylor even though he's not here into this conversation some of the Willy of, Wonka World, by the way yeah he's, he's, no he's, he's sorry uh, uh, Willie world Willie's chocolate sorry. Willy world is, where, Billy is where Taylor, Willy's yeah. chocolate world yeah, that's that's where Taylor is. But Taylor, Taylor's talked about, and rightfully so, even before some of the reporting came out, some of the body language challenges that stem from Tuchel and a, a real lack of positive relationship with his players and with some of the other folks in and around the club. So basically everything that could have gone wrong, given how high and how far above Bayern Munich start relative to the rest of the Bundesliga almost every season, everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong, and it's taken them down to second place, which is a statement on the competitiveness or lack thereof in the Bundesliga. Would Bayern have been better off with Nagelsmann? Yeah, I, I kind of think so. I, I don't think that that tenure was a massive success. Again, not just because the title race was so close when Nagelsmann was like, oh, last year and Tuchel just barely sneaks over the line and Dortmund had a chance to do it, by the way, on the final match day. But because I, I don't think all of these same problems were there last season under Nagelsmann. I think if you have more continuity whether it's Nagelsmann or whoever, right? If you're a little slower on the trigger finger, like we generally expect Bayern to be, I think continuity helps solve some of these problems and helps you work through things. But as it stands now, Bayern's board and the folks running the club seem uncontent with basically everything that's going on in the club. and I think that is a recipe for problems.
1: Graham, what say you?
0: Yeah, I, I don't think
2: you can say the decision to hire
0: Tuchel has paid off
2: for Bayern. Uh, points to everything that is happening right now at that <laughs> club, and I certainly think it has set them back quite a bit. So the thing with Nagelsmann was he was meant to be the change candidate, right? He was meant to be the one to bring in new ideas. Bayern had played roughly the same way for 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 a good while, certainly since Pep Guardiola, and even before then under under like Yup Hinkes, they played the same shape, general uh, same approach. Um, and ultimately, the Bayern board. They brought Nagelsmann in, they gave him a couple seasons and they decided, actually, no, we like the old way, which turns out is actually pretty flawed. Um, so I think Bayern find themselves back to where they were when they appointed Nagelsmann. They haven't made any progress since then. They, they're stuck with this the slightly old fashioned Bayern Munich way. They need some new ideas. And now they're trying to identify the person to give them those new ideas. There are a lot of off-field issues at Bayern. um, So that's the one thing that holds me back from... I certainly agree that Thomas Tuchel, that that seems like a mistake. Now, the one thing that holds me back from saying things would have been better under Julian Nagelsmann, although I accept Joe's point that things weren't as bad last season as they are this season, are the off-field issues um, that are at the club right now. The board is in a state of flux. Uh, Bayern have appointed Max Eberl as their new sporting director. He's coming from RB Leipzig. He was presenting to the media this week. He was talking a lot about developing young players and a new modern style of, of play for Bayern Munich. So these things, would Nagelsmann still would have had to grapple with a lot of this stuff if he was in charge and he was grappling with it last season. Um, so whoever comes into this this club this summer, is going to have to battle with the board. They're going to have a, a new sporting director to contend with. There is going to be some freedom to remould the team, but this is it feels like the start of a, a kind of reconstruction project right now. So, I will yeah to to recap, things weren't as bad last season under Nagelsmann as they are under Tuchel now. But I still think this Leverkusen team would have wiped the floor with last season's Bayern yeah. Munich. So ultimately, would they have won the title? I'm 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 doubtful, and that's really the only thing that Bayern Munich. Care about so it's kind
0: of shades of gray between badness at this well, point. Well, and in either way, it's a troubling sign for Bayern Munich that we're even having this conversation, right? They've gone out and, and hired two high-profile managerial candidates: Julian Nagelsmann first, now Thomas Tuchel. Like these are our names that are towards the top of every single managerial opening when they don't have a job. Like they're always involved in these kinds of discussions. They have both had success. The fact that Bayern Munich continue to struggle, and the fact that again, to reemphasize, they're so quick to jump from one ship to the next ship. Like, Tuchel's the guy they wanted. That was the reporting last season. It's like, oh, we really want Thomas Tuchel. We believe in him. You know, we, we want to ditch Nagelsmann so we can go out and get him now. And and like, what has that done for them? Either it speaks ill of their ability to identify managerial talent who can help elevate the group of players that they have, or it speaks ill in general of the player pool. And I don't really think that's the problem. You look at the quality in this squad. Yes, they've dealt with injuries. Kingsley Coman, Alfonso Davies, others as well. Like, this team is good enough to get results. There are deeper problems that extend outside of the players, even though those guys haven't necessarily performed at their peak and have been a little slow to identify spaces to drop into and have kind of ebbed and flowed in terms of how they they relate to Harry Kane on the field. Like There are some issues there, but the issues for Bayern Munich right now extend far deeper than just the players, the 11 guys that are out there on the field.
1: Graham, how much do we think Thomas Tuchel's stock has dropped in recent Year, months and maybe even recent appointments. Do we still yeah. put him up in the upper echelon? Um,
2: I think his stock has dipped pretty dramatically, to be honest. I can't remember if, if it was yourself that I spoke to about this or whether it was Taylor. I have a feeling it was it was Taylor. But if you look at his last few clubs, he's kind of flamed out at yeah. a good number of them. Going all the way back to Dortmund, flamed out at that club, flamed out at PSG, flamed out at Chelsea, now flaming out at, Bor- uh, at Bournemouth. What am I talking about? <laughs> Bournemouth wishes he flamed flamed out there uh, by Munich. And there's a similar trend. He tends to kind of clash with the boards. He struggles to find a tactical identity that works for, for players. And, of course, he's had immediate in, impact at clubs. He won the Champions League at Chelsea a few months after taking over there. He's had success at Dortmund and PSG to a certain extent as well. But at this point, yeah, I wouldn't place Thomas Tuchel as in in the Tier 1 of, of, of managers. Reporting says he wants another Premier League job. And Manchester United quite like him, so if he's looking for one more club to flame out at, there's none better than yeah. uh, Manchester United.
1: <laughs> Match made in heaven. I like the sound of that. I'm going to make a prediction that this question that Richard has sent in, we could reframe it slightly, change the, the team name uh, in the fall of 2026. We could say, was it a mistake for Germany to hire Thomas Tuchel? Would Germany have been better off with Julian <laughs> Nagelsmann? That's my prediction. Interchangeable. I like, it. I like it, it. Yeah, feels like it's it's trending in that direction always does thank you very much richard for that question we go now to dr mantis toboggan md i hope it's always sunny wherever you are dr mantis do you all think leverkusen make it to the end of the season with zero losses how common is a zero loss season and what other teams have done this now graham the most famous example of course happened in the 2003-04 season of course I'm talking about ASC Wimbledon who currently hold the record for the longest number of unbeaten uh, league matches in English senior football with 78 consecutive league matches from February 2003 to December 2004. Also during that period Arsenal were known as the, un- in the Invincibles uh, 26 wins and 12 draws in the Premier League. Uh, I think only two English sides certainly have done it Preston back in the old 19th century uh, as well. Uh, it's a rare thing to do Graham.
2: So first of all, is that AFC Wimbledon fact true? That at the same time Arsenal were the invincibles that Wimbledon went... What what was the number again? 78
1: 78. Or 78 game between uh, February 2003 and December 2004. It was so, one league, so it doesn't uh, quite count the same.
0: Also in that category, they they didn't even qualify for the question from Mantis Toboggan because it's not over a single season. Like they didn't complete either season of those two seasons going completely undefeated. Well, Ryan, that's a tough one. 78, surely... Is no, if, a, if if it's from it's February of one year to am I am I tri- is there a full season in there and I'm just an idiot?
1: Well, it's February 2003 to December 2004. Right. So it's quite a long period. Well, uh, I, I,
0: yeah, there's there's not a full. I don't think there's a full season in there, but it is an impressive accomplishment nonetheless. Yeah, great. Where all the wheels are turning. It was concurrent with Arsenal's invincible season. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well done. You shoehorned <laughs> it in, Ryan. I'm proud of you. I will
2: begrudgingly accept that is that is yeah. uh, rather impressive but yes the, the 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 invincible season that people remember from that time is arsenal uh, possibly Daddy's the most right. famous invincible season ever. Juventus did it in the 2011-2012 season in Serie A, the famous Ajax team that won the Champions League in 1995. That same team went unbeaten in the Eredivisie. Um, we get unbeaten Scotland, unbeaten seasons in Scotland every few years because that's the way our league is. So Celtic did it under Brendan Rodgers a few seasons ago, then Rangers did it under Steven Gerrard. As far as, far as I can tell, Um, No American team has ever had an unbeaten season, so maybe that'll be... The Dolphins did
1: it in 72, I think, was that (laughs) the only one?
2: I must have missed. Were they one of the Florida teams that folded in MLS around the early
1: 2000s? Right, I missed that.
2: Um, So maybe that'll be Inter-Miami this year if they get more refereeing decisions like the one that they got on on, on Sunday. Maybe they'll have an unbeaten season. Um, In terms of whether Leverkusen can do it this year, so there are 11 fixtures of the Bundesliga season left. And the way they're going, you wouldn't you wouldn't rule it out. So if you look at the fixtures Leverkusen have left, they played Bayern Munich home and away, so that's something ticked off. They've got an away game at Dortmund in April, and they have an away game at Antri Frankfurt after that. Those are the two matches that I'm circling. Those are the, the it seem to be the two most challenging matches, away two top six opponents. Those are the potential banana skins. The other thing is Leverkusen are going quite well in the Europa League this season. So if they were to wrap up the Bundesliga title quite quickly and are in the latter rounds of the, the Europa League, topping like talking like the quarterfinals, semifinals, maybe even the final, then maybe some rotation could prevent an unbeaten season. But yeah, we're they're, they're looking pretty good. It's it's a possibility for them right now.
0: Update, Joe's an idiot. There was a complete full season there for Wimbledon, and uh, Ryan was correct all along. So well done on your part, Ryan. Uh, In terms of Bayern Leverkusen, I I also think they've got a real shot. I'm going to hedge towards no, though. This is coming after we all said, you know, they probably wouldn't win the title. This was not too long ago. It was before that game against Bayern, and then they stopped Bayern, and things changed real quick. So maybe every time I doubt Bayer Leverkusen they just come back stronger and, and that's that's where we're at with this team. But I'm I'm going to say no, Graham you highlighted it well in terms of the some of the schedule coming up having Bremen, Dortmund, Stuttgart and Frankfurt in in back to back to back to back Bundesliga games is not an easy stretch whatsoever and that is coming up for this team. The Europa League angle is one as well. So this is it, it's on the cards. Like it's it I shouldn't say on the cards. It it is up for grabs for Bayer Leverkusen, but it's not going to be easy for this team. Again, it just speaks to how good this group is, though, under Shabi Alonso, how impressive their signings have been, turning over some of the squad from last year to this year. You know, up-and-coming players as well. Everything has gone right for this team, and they are a very good team that forces things to go right for themselves with their skill.
1: I've got a prediction. Bochum is the penultimate game of the Bundesliga season for Leverkusen. Uh, They are one place above the relegation zone. If they are in the battle, I fancy a banana skin there as well. Anybody joining me on that one? Yeah, mm. potentially. I,
2: I could. You don't. Once you get to the end of the season and you've got things to play for, you want mid-table teams at mm. home is essentially what you want. You don't want teams up near you, and you don't want relegation-threatened teams. So I, um, I mean, I, I don't know. Leverkusen are obviously a much better team than Borcam, but I, I can see your theory there. Well, Ryan.
0: and and it's tricky as well because this is not necessarily a situation where it's going to be a down-to-the-wire title race. Leverkusen are eight points clear of Bayern Munich right now. If they wrap this thing up with two to three weeks left in the season, which is very possible, Ryan, your your Bokum shout could be right on. They play Augsburg on the final day. They're currently 11th in the table. That could be one as well if they, if they have something to play for and maybe a few things go wrong for them between now and then. So it is possible that just by the sheer fact of them being so good for so long this year that they won't have much to play for at the end.
1: Indeed. Thank you very much, Dr. Mantis, for the question. and Thank you to this group of uh, mass geniuses who eventually figured out that February 2003 to 2004 has one full European calendar season within it. Excellent stuff. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking Wilfred Nancy back shortly.
2: This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham.
1: Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions in... Including, but not limited to this question from James Pearson. Are you surprised that Wilford Nancy was not linked with more European jobs in the winter of 23-24?
0: No, not more dates. Not not more dates. I can't do it, guys. (laughs) When
1: was it? Was that in the past or the future? I don't know. (laughs) Would the crew need a special season this year for him to be considered for a job in the European undercard of Netherlands, Portugal, France or Turkey? And could he be a Leverkusen replacement if Chabi Alonso leaves this summer? Joe, how are we feeling about this one? It's it's not a common transition from MLS coaching to Europe. Uh, but I mean, why not somewhere in France? Right?
0: I I just love that France is included in the European undercard, as it should be. It is so clearly not the top four leagues, not one of the top four leagues in Europe, and there's a big gap between it. Is that the, the definition? The undercard
1: four. is everything under the top five.
0: I'm I'm kind of into that. No, the top four now, as James has identified, and I'm and I'm into that idea. I like this a lot, James. I'm all aboard. Uh I am not surprised that Wilfred Nance wasn't linked with more European jobs over this winter. Columbus crew win MLS Cup. They play the best soccer in the league last year. They were a very, very good team nearly from start to finish. And yet we don't see a lot of MLS coaches, even the most successful ones, go abroad, right? We saw Jesse Marsh go and do it. We saw Ronnie Dyla go to Belgium with Standard Liège. We saw Patrick Vieira go and do it heading over to France and then to, to England and that, that Crystal Palace didn't, didn't work out great, but I don't think he was really the problem there. But all that's sort of an aside just to say we don't see many MLS coaches go and get a notable European job. We just don't have a major track record of that kind of thing happening. The coaching pathway is still in its infancy. So I think another successful year for Wilfred Nance, who has been the most valuable MLS coach that I can ever remember, to be quite honest. The the way that he transformed the Columbus crew last year, the way that they look so good already so early this season – and didn't seem to lose anything in the offseason like this this club is fantastic and Nance is one of the larger drivers for that more so than most managers and I, I believe pretty strongly that we tend to overrate the impact that managers have on soccer games Wilfred Say's impact feels pretty tangible when you watch this team play and watch how they played before he got there so another good year you know maybe it's a trophy or maybe you know they finish towards the top of the east but don't win anything I'm not sure that's going to matter if he continues playing this kind of soccer and the crew have some level of success, even if it's not to where it was last year, I do think a, a job at a bigger club, maybe not one of the biggest, but a bigger club in Belgium or a mid-table league on team or somewhere in the Netherlands or, or whatever it is, right? It feels like Belgium and France make the most sense given that Nancy himself is French and speaks French. Like that seems like it will absolutely be on the table after another solid year in 2024.
1: Yeah, Graham, your thoughts on this? Were you surprised that he wasn't up for more or any European jobs? And perhaps the elephant in the room is that there are fewer opportunities for, for black coaches, yeah. uh, certainly in Europe as well.
2: Yeah, we can't discount that as a factor. Depressingly, um, the numbers speak for themselves. Black coaches don't get the opportunities that white coaches get and that needs to change quickly. But yeah, maybe that was a factor with Wilfred Nonsi. But I, um, I generally agree with, essentially everything that Joe has just said. I'm not surprised because, frankly, I don't think MLS is seen as a serious talent pool for managers by European clubs. Um, obviously, as Joe mentioned, we've, we've had Jesse Marsh. He was the most prominent. But he was in the Red Bull pipeline, went to Salzburg. So even he is a little bit of an exception. Ronnie Dyla had coached in, in Europe and yep. in Norway and in, at Celtic. And despite the fact that winning MLS Cup with NYCFC may be a greater achievement than winning the Scottish Premiership with Celtic at a time when Rangers were not in the league, I kind of think European clubs will look more at the Celtic years than the mm-hmm. MLS years, regardless of how unfair that is. Bob Bradley ended up in Europe, but of course he had to go the long way round to, to get there. So I just don't think European clubs look to MLS for head coaches in the same way that they do for players. But I, I wrote a piece last year, I can't remember who it was for, um, about Wilford Nonsi. And my prediction was that he will buck the trend and he'll he'll get a European club. I certainly think smart clubs should be looking at him and the way Columbus play under him and the way that he so quickly got across his ideas last year and got the crew playing his sort of football last season. So when James says, what would Nancy need to do to be considered for, for jobs in the Netherlands or Portugal, etc., I would argue he doesn't really need to do any more. It's probably a better idea, certainly in a league like MLS, to assess managers on performance rather than results. And Nancy has more than proved himself in that sense, not just at the Columbus crew as well, at, at Montreal b- b- before then. Keep in mind, the crew paid a fee, right, Joe, to get Nancy from, that's, from that's Montreal? That's the understanding, yep. So he already had a, had a high stock by the time that he got there. In terms of the Le- Leverkusen job, just to move it on a little bit, despite everything that I've just said about Wilfred Nancy being an excellent coach, and I do think he will get a European opportunity at some point, Um, I would be surprised if Nancy went straight in at that sort of level. Yeah. You're talking about, if Bayer Leverkusen won the Bundesliga this season, you're talking about one of the most attractive jobs in all of European football. I've seen Julian Nagelsmann linked with that job. I've seen... um. Pep Linders who is Klopp's assistant at Liverpool um, so unfortunately I I think C is, is is quite a difficult sell keep in mind I've just said MLS isn't a common talent pool for European clubs to go, go to for head coaches if they lose Xabi Alonso in the summer those fans are going to want like a notable replacement. And unfortunately, Nancy is just not going to be on the radar for most of those fans. So I think he'll probably need a stepping
0: stone before getting to to that kind of level. Agreed. Graham, you you said something there about the Leverkusen job that I think is fascinating. Do you, do you actually think it's that attractive? I mean, yes, compared to most professional soccer team jobs, it is is super attractive. It's not in the (laughs) undercard. That is true. And it has that in its favor. But like, yeah, I guess I'm I'm confused by that because to me it feels like a pretty much the only way is down type of situation. Yeah, I I, I do understand that confusion in terms of
2: matching Xabi Alonso's uh, achievements, right. you've pretty much got no chance as yeah. the next Liverpool manager. But they're
0: going to be in the Champions League,
2: right? And they're sure. they're going to be up in the upper, they're near the upper echelons of the okay. Bundesliga table. Fair so enough. in that sense, I still think it's a, an attractive job.
0: Yeah, I I agree, and I think most managers, if they haven't coached at that level, would jump at the chance to do so, despite the inevitable drop off that's coming. So I take your point there, like. Nance is just so clearly we're talking about the coaching pathway still being so young and, and clubs not really looking to MLS for coaching talent. I, I don't blame them. Like Nance is still so far and above the best coach in Major League Soccer. And and to be honest, I'm not really taken with any of the other managers in the league right now in terms of you know if, if I was running high. what's that
1: Dean Smith says hi
0: nothing yeah I mean been there done that right I think I think he has already checked some of those boxes. But in terms <laughs> of the coaches that haven't haven't done the European thing before. I don't really know who you're looking at inside of Major League Soccer. Jim Curtin, I think, is a good coach. Pat Noonan seems like a good coach. Are they super differentiable in, in how they do things? I don't, I don't think so. I, I still wouldn't mind them leading my lower-level European club. But you just look around Major League Soccer, and it, it's a little depressing. But there aren't a ton of managers that scream, I'm ready for a new challenge. I am doing something cool and different and fun and successful and differentiable <laughs> with my club. Like, Nance is that guy, and I do think he'll be gone in the next season or two.
1: I, for one, hopes he does land in France eventually, either Nice or Nonce. Noncie, Nonce or Nice sounds Ooh, uh, that's alliterative and wonderful to me. I can like, already
0: see happens. you working that into an intro rhyme, right? Oh,
1: yeah, I'm going to trip over that one. Anyway, James Pearson, thank you very much for your question. We go now to Bobby Dox Tater, who says As a Wolves supporter, I feel they kind of get overlooked by a lot of soccer podcasts I listen to there's other ones and i just wanted to get your take on how well gary o'neill gary o'neill excuse me has done with his club coming in with the situation he had we've had a lot of youthful fun players who a few are now all hitting their stride pedro Neto, gomez are two of my favorites says bobby to watch in the whole of the premier league uh graham yeah Wolves uh, Doing pretty well form-wise yeah. right now. Ninth in the league. Th- three wins in the last four, including away wins at Chelsea and Spurs. They've done a double on Chelsea this season. Uh, still in the FA Cup as we record, but maybe later tonight may not be. But um, not, a, not a glamorous team, I suppose. Not a glamorous area of the UK, which might... Explain you see that about everywhere the... though that
2: isn't London. <laughs>
1: well, it's because it's true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, if you say so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, maybe not the the most glamorous place, although I'm sure Wolverhampton is is, is fine. It's um, the most but...
1: I'll, Graham. I'll say it's the most glamorous sounding stadium. Molyneux. Just sounds really fancy. I'll get
2: Wilfred Nancy to mull on you for next season. Um, Not to give myself too much credit with Wolves, but I have tried to highlight Wolves uh, a couple times recently. I think most recently after their win over Spurs, where I was very impressed with them. And I mentioned them on, on Weekend Review. They are a fun team in a way that I didn't expect at all this season. And Gary Neal has done an exceptional job to come in and implement a style of play that suits his players. And to do that with any preparation time and without any pre-season, of course, he comes in to that job, I think, like three days before the start of the Premier League season after Lopetegui leaves. All that stuff is really impressive. And I just find O'Neill impressive in general. He was on... Monday night football earlier this season. Every time I watch Monday night football, I think it's a crime that Joe doesn't have access to Monday night football. It has become the nerdiest mainstream show on British Go TV, on. and I and I and I love it. And they have this segment, so they have a guest on every week, and and it's it's either a manager or a former player. Oh, Jesse March was on a, recently. Yeah, yeah I like saw that's some, where some
0: screen grabs on Twitter.
2: Yeah, so what they, they have this segment before the game, even though there will be a live game, but they'll spend like an hour before that game talking about just other stuff. They'll maybe talk about other teams. They'll have If they have a manager on, they'll spend 20 minutes talking through their tactics and they have big screens and they show clips and they pause bits. It's really interesting. And yeah, Jesse Marsh was on a couple of weeks ago. He was really interesting. O'Neill was on it earlier in the season, and that was the first time that I'd really clocked just how firm a, a grasp he has of of setting up a team to do mm. certain things and tactically how astute he is, and he's clearly very intelligent. I, I'm a big fan of his, and I wrote about him just last week for an outlet. I said he's the best young English manager in the Premier League. I'd, I'd, I'd hold him in that kind of esteem. So, yeah, I agree with Bobby. Wolves are having a fun season, and they've, they seem to have an excellent manager.
1: Great. Didn't that make headlines when he did Monday Night Football because he basically gave away the complete strategy of Wolves and also decimated a couple of other teams in the process? Yeah.
2: So, funnily enough, he's been speaking about that today or yesterday. It's on the BBC Sport page uh, homepage, and he's basically said, "Yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about um, people knowing like my strategy or knowing my opposition analysis." He's basically an open source manager, is yeah. is, is is what he is, <laughs> and I like that ab- ab- about Gary O'Neill. Just to highlight the team very quickly, I've, I've watched a number of Wolves m- matches um, this season, been really impressed by how intense their midfield is. So, Jau Gomez. He's kind of come out of nowhere, not someone that I was terribly familiar with until recently, but he kind covers so much I love ground. That we do that. <laughs> It's canon at this point. Uh, together with Lamina Gomez, they just they they cover so much ground, they're able to spring the attack into life. And that's where Wolves are They're most thrilling, when they get Huang and uh, Cunha Cunha and Pedro Neto, and even Sarabia, if he's involved, running forward with intent. They're all very technical, all have good physical attributes. Um, so, yeah, I thought this season was going to be difficult for Wolves. I think I had them down as one of the relegation candidates, but I was completely wrong about that. And they are, yeah, very good to watch.
1: There you go. Joe, time to reverse the trend of Wolves being overlooked from your perspective. Let's go.
0: Yeah, let's look at them. We're going to look under them this time and still skip them right over in our discussion. No, I mean, I, I echo basically everything that Graham has said right now. I think they've exceeded expectations in the Premier League right now, ninth They've had one of the elements that that maybe we haven't talked about yet. They've had very, very good goalkeeping. Jose Saha has been brilliant for them in that 31-year-old Portuguese goalkeeper. He's saving a fifth of a goal more than expected every 90 minutes. So you can basically count on him to save a a full goal every five games, which has been massive for Wolves. They've had the third best goalkeeping record when you go and and dig into some of the advanced stats in the Premier League this season. He's been very, very good and, and really has been the anchor for a team that still... Yes, they have some fun, young, kind of early prime talent. And and Bobby mentions a couple of those players in his question. But they're still at a talent deficit relative to, obviously, the the best of the best in the Premier League and even a a handful of other teams that are more mid-table. But having someone like Sa and Goal can erase all that stuff. And and if you're Gary O'Neill, that gives you a really strong foundation to then work off of. And, And, Graham, I hadn't seen much of the Monday Night Football stuff that you mentioned, but that's all fantastic. I read a piece in The Athletic. That highlighted a few of his post-match or pre-match press conference quotes, or basically he keeps hitting out at at folks that are asking questions about their starting formation. And this is something that managers do all the time, but I love it whenever anyone does it because Gary O'Neill and others in his in his trade talk about how you know formations are just starting points; they're not totally binding. He, he, he's talked about how you know everybody seems really concerned if we're playing a back four or a back five. And says stuff about you know how they play both, even over the course of a single game or over the course of a single minute or two. And I love that he talks so, so frequently about that because that is how this sport actually works. It's not just a 4-3-3 shape from start to finish. You go and sometimes Wolves are in a back three in possession. And sometimes they shift to a back four. And sometimes it looks like neither or both all at the same time. You add that structure to very good goalkeeping to a couple of fun, young, early prime players. And yeah, you do have a team that deserves some love, and I'm glad that Bobby teed us up to talk about him.
1: Indeed. Thank you very much, Bobby. We're, of course, a Wolves-friendly podcast around here, and we always will be. Uh, and by the way, there's a very good documentary called When the LA Wolves Conquered the USA, which came out, I think, uh, at the end of last year. Oh, yeah. yeah. I
2: saw the trailer for that. It looked good, but I've not got round to watching it. Have you seen it, Ryan?
1: I've seen uh, most of it. It's on the YouTubes, or at least it was a little while ago. I recommend looking it up. It's basically the Wolves team coming over and, winning a title in the late 60s not to spoil it too much but it's in the title itself um (laughs) but yeah very good and worth watching with the nice link between Wolves and the U.S. as well Bobby thank you very much for that question we go now to a quick break when we come out we're talking about corners and we're talking about soccer turning up in your favorite movies back shortly
3: this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before
1: Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Listen to Questions. Nicholas Catano has been in touch and says, I've never understood the appeal of a team passing out from a corner kick instead of whipping a ball into the middle and potentially getting a header on goal. Are there any stats that were back up passing out from a corner instead of taking the free cross? This, Graham, leads to sort of a fundamental issue about corners you know traditionally in soccer you win a corner the fans get very very excited mm. it's a big build-up it's a big moment but corner height isn't always justified whipping into the box isn't always justified i found various different stats on this like there's one from the analyst adopter who said only between three to four percent of corners whipped in end up as a goal uh, there's various other contrasting stats which will put that percentage a little bit higher but main i mean in my, my, my position here is in a world where the keeper passes it short and doesn't hoof it down the field, it makes sense to keep possession and pass a corner short as well. Is that not a, a, a linked philosophy?
2: Yeah, potentially. I think we read the same analyst article. Um, <laughs> so the numbers that I've got, if we look at the Premier League this season, 32.6% of short corners. So I think this is backdated by like a couple of months, but um, 32.6% of short corners led to a shot from that passage of play. Only 3.3% led to a goal. For cross corners, it's not much different, really. So 385 led to a shot, so I guess that's um, a meaningful increase of of some sort, 4.1 lead to a goal. So, there you know, there's really not much of a, a difference there. I think this is one of those things that depends on the team playing the short corners, to be honest. If a team is bad at short corners, they are probably better at just getting across into the box. So I can understand fan frustration at short corners at times. Uh, Sterling Albain, for example... Useless at short corners. Just generally useless at passing the ball. So it's not something I want us to do very often. But we have big boys who can come up from the back for crosses. So more often than not, I want it whipped into the box. But if you are a team that um, is maybe more adept on the possession side of the game and disorganising opponents with your use of the ball, um, then you probably want more phases of play from short corners. There was a good video, sorry to hog hog the mic a little bit more, but there was a good video a few months ago of Luke Williams, who is the Knox County manager and he was speaking at an AGM or a fan event or something like that. But he's, he's clearly taken a question from a fan who has complained about the number of short corners that his team takes. Which is the most and British
0: thing ever.
2: I it love is it. indeed. It is indeed. And I can relate to that very much, Joe, because every time Albion play a short corner, there's a groan around the stadium. And I might be one of them groaning. It's like a, I, I don't know. It's like a visceral fan reaction, I yeah. think, with, with short corners, particularly in lower league football, because we're generally not very good at them. Um, but Williams is very reasoned in his response. And he has loads of numbers about how actually Notts County score the most goals from corners of any team in their league. Um, But because they don't just whack it in the box, as he says, fans don't think of them as goals from corners. He talks about how goals scored from corners, uh, from corner kicks, from cross corners, are memorable but we don't remember the 50 corners that are just caught by the keeper or whatever or land on the top of the net. And he also talks about how it keeps the ball in play time higher for Notts County, and that is a factor in how Notts County wins games. So it just brings me back to my original thesis. If your your team is good at short corners, play short corners, and if they're bad at short corners, maybe just whack it in the box.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. And by the way, too much mention of Notts County, the natural enemy of America's team, AFC Wrexham less of that please Graham
2: I thought we just established that Wolves were the America's team how many teams does America have America's
1: primary team of course is AFC (laughs) Wrexham um I think I think Graham makes a very good point about sort of the lower levels you know you want to you want to see that ball whipped into the box you want to see like a big man try and get his head on it but my, my point is Joe that at the the very top level above sure. the undercard in europe say the overcard if you will the overcard if you will uh you where these teams want to play possession where they do anything to play it out short from 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 their own box it feels more intuitive to try and keep a hold of the ball and keep the ball in in play as graham mentioned knox county trying to do it feels it feels more natural to try and break down a defense in that manner rather than slogging a ball aerially into the box
0: I uh, As much as I love the phrase slogging a ball aerially into the box, <laughs> I, I do kind of see where you're coming from, Ryan. One thing that's fascinating to me about, about this discussion, and, and one reason why I'm not totally sure I agree with you, is that there's something very different about getting to take a corner kick than there is to, to building up, even with short passes, from goal kicks. right? I think about goal kicks, and teams drop these intricate build-up patterns and have really clear ideas of how they want to play forward into the attack and all that stuff. That's very real. You get to the final third, though, And all of a sudden you have a realistic chance in one action or two actions of having the ball in the back of the net in a way that you just don't from a goal kick. And so I think that does change the calculation slightly. And we see teams change their approach in the final third and specifically on corner kicks. And this is a fitting question that Nicholas has asked after we talked about on the weekend review for the part I was there for, Arsenal (laughs) scoring more goals on corner kicks. We talked about their routines. They will quite often hit the ball into the box. And because... They're close to goal and are one action away after the ball has been taken on a corner kick of putting the ball in the back of their net. I think there is a a real legitimate argument if you draw up careful set-piece plans, have good service, good bodies in the box, size to head the ball in the back of the net. And this is where, Graham, your team-specific and personnel-specific point I think is a good one. If you have the right pieces, I think there is a ton of merit. Like like Nicholas sort of leads us with this question – to just getting the ball in the box in a pre-planned, carefully thought-out way because corner kicks are one of the only times you get to take a beat and draw up a a plan or at least refer to one that you've drawn up before the game. Like That, I think, has a ton of value. I I honestly thought there'd be way more conclusive data about this topic online, and I was really disappointed. I I also read that same Mm. analyst article. Like There hasn't been a a ton. From what I could find And listeners, if you have some good data on this or have have read an article about it, send it over because I'd love to learn more I think it does depend a little bit on the team. And I'm not totally sure, Ryan, that that even the teams that most want to keep possession, like Arsenal, they're in that category, that it necessarily is this straight through line from them building up with short passes to playing short from corner kicks.
1: Okay, that's fair enough. Now, Joe, when you're at Phoenix Rising Games, are you scratch standing? In up the mixer! Get in, in the mixer! Is that is that you? Is that, are you that guy?
0: Yeah, everybody knows me as that guy. It's super on brand for me. Nobody's off put by my faux Scottish accent yeah. or anything. Everybody's just cool with it.
1: Oh, great. Scottish mixer guys here. That's what they say yeah, when you uh, yeah. are.
0: But with less sarcasm, Ryan. It's 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 a love. <laughs> it's it's a it's an endearing
1: thing. Indeed. Nicholas, thank you very much indeed for that question. One final question here on this episode from Shreya Romani, who says I was watching She's All That the other day and there was a short scene in the movie of Freddie Prinze Jr, Paul Walker and Julie Hill's characters playing soccer. What are your favourite random soccer clips or scenes in TV shows or movies? Uh, Graham, I'm going to get the ball rolling on this one with something that's not necessarily a clip of actual soccer but soccer involvement (laughs) in a movie. It is the movie Eurotrip. I don't know if you're aware of the movie Eurotrip.
2: I've seen Eurotrip but not not in a time when that film is still socially acceptable
1: (laughs) yeah it's probably i I don't think it works very well particularly the scene (laughs) i'm talking about which has some very uh offensive language by 2024 standards but vinnie jones as a hooligan uh driving through france in an open top british like red top uh double decker red bus uh as a the sort of the head of a hooligan firm for manchester united very much vinnie jones who does not (laughs) Strike you as someone from the Manchester region at all. Uh he's wearing knuckle dusters. He's chasing French fans and using uh foul language while doing so. Um that one that threw me for a curveball when I first saw that. Vinnie Jones, like, yeah, he'll take it he'll take any role in Hollywood, he's the juggernaut, the yeah. word. Um but uh yeah, that was one that sprung sprung to mind so, immediately.
2: <laughs> so you know what's happened there, right? He's turned up turned up on set, they've gone What team did you use to play for? Like who, what team are you most uh, associated with and he's gone afc and Wimble- or not afc at that point wimbledon he played for uh, chelsea
1: they've got a hooligan element they could have gone that, with them
2: that's true but people associate him with <laughs> wimbledon more than chelsea right that would yeah, be his club yeah, you would say yeah. so his club is wimbledon they've got okay no one knows who that is Um <laughs> uh, so we're just <laughs> going to pick the new york yankees of english football <laughs> manchester united okay you're now a manated hooligan that's exactly what's happened there
1: Yep, yep it is indeed graham what did you uh what did you find for your soccer uh, related incidents in movies
2: So I still remember the Manchester United stuff in Day After Tomorrow. So I was, I had to check this. I was 12 when Day After Tomorrow comes out. And when that that film came out, Um, It was, like, the first big blockbuster that I'd seen. I'm not convinced I'd ever seen, like, a disaster movie in the cinema before, so I was kind of into it. I've seen it a number of times, day after tomorrow. And there's a Scottish scientist in that who is watching United play a random Champions League game in one scene, but with no indication of what the match is or anything, and he kind of, like, randomly cheers at one point. You're like, is a goal being scored? Is it a corner? Um, and then spoiler alert when it seems like everyone's gonna die in the end they have a toast and a very thick scottish accent he makes this toast to manchester united to Manchester united it's very very weird stuff i don't know why they couldn't have got him a scottish team but maybe it's the same maybe it's the vinnie jones theory he Mm. turned up on set said he was a celtic fan they were like no you're a my United fan
1: they would have had a very scottish coach at that time graham maybe they thought there was some, some synergy there who knows?
2: They didn't know that. The creators of Death Tomorrow <laughs> did not know that.
1: There's a there's an account, uh, Adam Hurry, who does football cliches on X slash Twitter. Uh, I think his speciality is people send him screen grabs of the most obscure yes. soccer uh, clips from movies and TV. And somehow, I don't know how, Joe, but he, he manages to track most of them down. It's incredible.
0: Well, so this is where I was going with this question. Um, and obviously, Shreyas, I know this question was purpose-built for me, um, the single biggest TV and movie watcher of the four uh-huh, of us uh-huh, uh-huh. In, our, in our main rotating cast. So, I know you you want really to, to hear my opinion on this. Uh, the way I was taking this question, because I had no actual answer, is that one of my favorite folks creating any kind of content online is a, is a TikToker, or maybe he does Instagram too, I'm not sure, named Ian Arajo, And he does basically exactly what you just described from football cliches, which I didn't know about. But this guy goes and finds not just soccer clips from random like movies and TV shows and all that stuff, but he'll find any sports scene from any... Like any show or movie online, and he'll, he'll sort of go through his process and the hours and hours and hours that it took him to find it. And it is fascinating. And there was one apparently in Black Widow, the the Marvel movie that was released not too long ago now. It's supposed to be set in 2016, Black Widow. And he went, this guy Araujo went in to find the, the little soccer club that was showing in the background. And it was a game from 2014 instead of one from 2016. So maybe they were replaying a game in the background, but I guess it was South Korea and Paraguay in the background doing some sort of friendly... And he like got Marvel fans all riled up because it messed with the timeline that they've carefully tried to build. <laughs> so I have, I have so much respect for this guy going in and combing through hours and hours of internet articles and tape and all that stuff to find answers. Can you, can you imagine
2: the scene at Marvel HQ? They've done like a million <laughs> films, all intricately weaved together to create this timeline. And then someone points out, you've picked a game from two years earlier. That South yeah. Korea Paraguay game is not actually, it didn't happen in 2016. No, we'll Scrap need to start again.
3: Scrap it all. <laughs> just um,
1: <laughs> just a whiteboard with multiverse written on it and a big line through it. We've got to go again. We've got to go again. Um, Greg, I found uh, apparently an episode of Entourage, uh, a.k.a compelling reasons why Vinny doesn't or can't do the movie. Um, Vince. Vince, wasn't it, not Vinny? Vince, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, he gets into a million-dollar bet on a Manchester United penalty with Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper playing himself. Oh, yeah,
2: I remember remember that episode. I'm ashamed to admit... Were you? Are you only picking like things that are now considered socially unacceptable? Because <laughs> Entourage also fits that category. Yeah. I'm ashamed to admit I, I think I've seen most episodes of Entourage at least twice, so I, yeah. I remember that specific. Is it not like they It's like a beach, a beach house of some sort. I believe. So. The, yeah,
1: yeah, I do remember yeah. that episode. Yeah, I watched I, it as well. I like James I, Addiction. What can I say? They did the, they did the theme tune. <laughs> for shame um
2: (laughs) one of my favorite genres of of movies in general is like not so much clips of actual soccer matches but when they try to have a soccer scene and the person Mm -hmm. clearly has the director or whoever the script writer has clearly never watched a soccer match in their life so i love the stuff in the 2001 kids classic cats and dogs where jeff goldblum's family Wins free tickets to a match between Uruguay and soccer uh, powerhouses, Chad. Of course, yeah, that, yep. that's a that's a, a real match that would happen at the Rose Bowl. I think was the uh-huh. setting. But my favorite soccer scene of all time, and this isn't going to quite hit if you haven't seen the scene, so listeners should go and look look for this. But is the match in Stuart Little two? Um, the person who directed this match had, as I say, quite clearly had never seen a football match in their life. Basically, the ball gets booted from one end of the pitch to the other. And then 20 players just charge back and forth from one end of the pitch to the other. It, it, it felt like they got mixed up with with rugby.
1: It's absolutely sensational. It's on YouTube. Go and check it out. I will check that out indeed. My favourite... Um one of these moments which isn't technically soccer but made me do the um leo dicaprio with a beer in his hand pointing at the tv uh and <laughs> loudly get excited was in the sopranos when there is an episode of robot wars in the background and it is graham's favorite commentator jonathan pierce very audibly yes. uh, commentating on robot wars I, i'm sure graham very much enjoyed that very
2: well. audibly so he just takes over the entire scene then sir kill a lot like <laughs> yeah. joe has no idea what's going on now but he's you have loving seen
1: robot it wars? Sure. Big, big on, big on the uh, Lowry uh, playlist. What Robot wars?
0: What is Robot Wars? I mean, is it what it sounds like? Yeah. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> so it's battle bots. I think we have battle bots in the U.S. Is this is this a British specific thing, Robot Wars?
1: Yeah, probably the same thing. Okay, okay. I just sounds like how nice. yours
0: sounds a bit more proper, like Robot Wars, and ours is just like, yeah, let's battle those bots.
1: Yeah. And the only yeah. other thing I can think tangentially related to soccer, but not quite. Uh, Paul Greengrass, who's a British movie director. He made the the Bourne movies, the ones after the first one that Doug Liman Le- Doug did. Um, he famously said, if Tottenham qualify for the Champions League, I'll make another Bourne movie. They did. He did. <laughs>
2: <end>. <laughs> well, that's as good a, good a reason as any um, for making a film. That's yeah. a better reason than most Marvel films, to be fair.
1: Yeah, indeed. Cool. All right. BattleBots
2: uh, is exactly the same thing. By the way, go. I Googled it. It's Robot Wars. So who copied who?
1: Is it just rebranded? Like, is it the same thing? It looks so, exactly
2: the same yeah. thing. Like, even the, the, you know, like the traps on the floor, Ryan, look exactly how I
0: remember Robot Wars. I can't so believe we're Jonathan. bonding over BattleBots right now, guys. I'm yeah. so happy.
1: Yeah. Maybe it was Jonathan Pierce on BattleBots as well, then. Who knows? A little <laughs> <bitch>. Poor America. Poor <laughs> America. <laughs> on that note let's wrap this one up uh graham thank you very much for your contributions your listener question answering and your general demeanor and your lack of uh, pa- uh patronage for the willy wonka billy bonker <laughs> chocolate experience
2: there's still ch- there's still time for me to visit a uh, chocolate willy world or whatever it's called I-, I can't quite remember thanks ryan
1: oh boy joe larry thank you very much indeed for your services to this here podcast
0: keep those willy chocolatey's baby keep those Willy's chocolatey <laughs>
1: All right, we've got to finish now. <laughs> Listener, thank you very much for joining us on this episode. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for by now. Bye! <laughs>